Uh, it's a big passage today, verse 43 through to verse 72. And I texted Dave during the week and I said, um, can I have an hour and a half to preach today? And he said, no, 40 to 45 minutes. And then I said, oh, CJ only preached on half the passage and he spoke for 45 minutes, that's CJ Mahaney. So surely I can have, you know, an hour. I said, no, 40 to 45. So uh, I feel, I feel, I don't know, I feel it's going to be difficult uh, because what I feel is, like I'm at the Grand Canyon and I'm just, just taking a selfie. You know, it's, you know, it's so big, the passage we have today, and so good and so glorious, and yet we're just taking a little snapshot. That's all we have time for. But you can study it during the week and you can see more in it um, in your time with God than we can in this moment now. Uh, but I look forward to it. I look forward to preaching it. I look forward to us in the Word together. I feel a great seriousness in the passage this morning. Uh, John Piper says, uh, he's a preacher, he says, uh, when a preacher gets up, he's got the, the smell of the smoke of hell on one side and the light of the glory of heaven on the other. And we stand in between those two realities. I feel that this morning. I feel that in this. It's a dark passage. It's a really dark passage. It's a serious passage. It's not a fun passage. It's hard to read. It's hard to imagine it being true. You know, I find myself, you know, with wet eyes reading this passage. So oh, if you're asleep, wake up. If you're distracted, put your phone on flight mode. Uh, we have a serious work before us today, and I wouldn't want us to miss it. I've been camping all week down the south coast, and one of the great things about being down south is there's no city lights. There's no light pollution. I used to live around this area in Hornsby and, you know, you could, every night we'd take the kids out actually and we'd say, look at the star, you know, <laughs> one star about you could see because all the unit blocks and all the light and, and it's still beautiful, the star, through the trees and through the haze. I've moved out to Blacktown now and there's a few more stars because there's less unit blocks where we live and you can see more of them. But down south, the light in the sky is incredible. I know you've probably seen it. It dazzles. You can see the cosmos. You can, yeah, I feel like I'm looking through the whole galaxy. You can see the Milky Way. See the Southern Cross. You can see just it's shining and it's dazzling beauty because it's contrasted, contrasted against a black sky. And that's exactly what we have in this passage today. We have a black and dark passage. But the whole design of Mark in this passage is to contrast, to contrast it with the dazzling Jesus. Jesus will shine in this passage today. He will shine against the black backdrop of human weakness and sin. That's what we're going to see. Uh, and I, I pray and ask that God will move in your hearts to see him dazzle today. If you want a title, my title is, it's a bit weird, but I'll go with it. The Shadowy Betrayal, Trial, and Denial of the Dazzling Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a long one. <laughs> it's a long one. I've been reading Jonathan Edwards, who's an 18th century preacher, and he had like 42 word titles. So I feel like, you know, my 15 word title is okay. Shadows and dazzling, contrast is what we have. 
contrast. And that's how we're going to go through the passage. We're going to walk through three scenes. A betrayal in the garden, a trial in the high priest's house, and the denial of Peter the Apostle in the courtyard. And each time, the structure, I'm, just, I'm going to walk through, then I'm going to show you human weakness, the black backdrop, and then I'm going to show you the dazzling saviour, then I'm going to pull it all together at the end and see what God has to say to us in application. So why don't we pray together? Oh God, let there be light this morning. May you shine. May your sun shine in our eyes. May you lift him up as you bring us low. Lord, speak to us right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's begin. We're in the final days of Jesus' life before his death. I know Easter was last week, but we're going through the book of Mark. And so we're actually before Easter now. We're, we're in the garden, the last kind of 12-ish hours of Jesus' life. And last Friday, Brendan preached us a message of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane praying. Praying that God would take away the cup. Praying that God would take away his judgment that Jesus wouldn't have to drink it, that he wouldn't have to drink the torment of hell. He wouldn't have to die on the cross. And yet, Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours. And he finds the disciples sleeping. He asks them to pray. His dear friends, his closest three, he asks them to pray for him, yet he comes to them three times and they're asleep. And they're asleep. And then we read in verse 41. And he came to them a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Just sit in that a moment. He knows what's happening. And Mark is painting a picture for us today. He's like a, like a movie director. He, he wants us to see something today. He wants us to see. And so he pans out from Jesus with his disciples saying, Rise, my betrayer's at hand. He pans out, verse 43, and says, And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And Mark includes that there. We know who Judas is, but he includes it there, one of the twelve, for shock. It's one of his best friends. And Judas came, one of the twelve. And who's with him? Not more followers. Not people who need healing this time. Not even a crowd that wants a miracle, but a crowd, in verse 43, with swords and clubs from the chief priests, and the scribes, and the elders. The scene changes dramatically from Jesus straining in prayer to flickering torches, swords, clubs, an army of men, and Judas the betrayer. Verse 44. 
Now, the betrayer, notice he isn't called Judas anymore. The betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him, that is Jesus. He went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. This is Judas's assault, his assassination, his arrest of his leader. And it, it wasn't a new thing. He'd planned it, and he'd even planned how the sting was to go down. He planned a kiss, and it says he kissed him, and, and I don't know what you imagine that kiss was like, but in, in the Greek, the, the word is, it, it's not a peck. It's actually like a warm, affectionate, embracing kiss, embracing kiss. One that actually went for some time, a, a kiss of respect that you would only give to your dearest friend. And, and Judas puts it on Jesus, whom he's betraying, and then calls him rabbi. And that means my great one or my master. It's a horrible scene. It's horrible. It's despicable. Verse 46. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who... St- who stood by, drew his sword. We learn from John's gospel that it's Peter, but he's not named in Mark. And struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. In the darkness of night, in secret, they arrest him. Presumably to avoid the riots of the crowds who are sort of following Jesus. He's this controversial figure. We've seen him teaching in the temple ages ago. Actually, last time I preached on Mark, we saw Jesus fighting with the scribes and the Pharisees with argumentation and scripture. And, and they want to arrest him, but they're afraid. They're cowards. And so they do it at night. A kerfuffle breaks out, a sword, an ear is chopped off. It's healed later by Jesus, John tells us. Uh, There might be Roman guards here with with swords, uh, Jewish temple police with clubs. And Jesus points out their cowardice. But he's arrested. And what's the reaction of his disciples? So one disciple, one of the twelve has betrayed him. What are the other eleven going to do? Verse 50. And they... All left him and fled. And not just the disciples. Read on verse 51 and 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. As he's arrested, his band of brothers, his disciples, all flee. They run into the night. And even an onlooker, potentially Mark himself, the one who's writing this gospel. Potentially that's him who's, who's there, who's, who's come hastily. He's just put on a linen cloth, uh, which was an expensive garment, but he doesn't have his outer garment on. And they grab him and even he leaves behind his expensive garment and bolts. Jesus is deserted. He's betrayed. He's let down. And in the darkness of this horrible scene, in the flickering torches, in the blackness, Mark wants to show us a contrast. Okay, so you need to look for it. You you should have seen it. The contrast between human weakness 
and Jesus in control. Do you see it? I mean, the, the, the human weakness is clear. Judas had hardened his heart against Jesus. He hardened his heart. He steeled himself. He was just at a meal with him. He just had his feet washed by Jesus. Yet he hardens his heart and still betrays him. Notice in verse 45, it says, And he, that is Judas, went up to him at once. You can imagine this scene. Jesus is there, the swords, the clubs, the guards, they come, and Judas just goes straight up to him. Maybe in case he's going to chicken out, maybe in case he thinks something's going to happen, but he goes straight to him and betrays him. Wicked. Totally wicked. He planned it. Are you planning any sin? Have you got any sin plans in your heart this morning? Are you planning any sin? Maybe your tax return, as we preached last time. Are you planning any adultery? Any betrayal? Any gossip? Any fighting? Are you planning any sin like Judas? Are you stealing your heart against your Savior? But we don't just see human sin in Judas. We see it in the disciples as they all flee. Yet, we ought not to despair and think, oh, poor Jesus, poor old Jesus, trapped arrested. Mark wants us to see a totally different picture. Did you, do you see here how Jesus is in control? Everyone else thinks they're in control this moment, but only one is. See, Jesus is no victim in this moment. He's no victim to fate or chance or bad luck. No, Mark wants us to see the opposite. He wants us to see that the whole time Jesus is in control. How? Firstly, there's three things. Firstly, he predicted this betrayal and knew when it was happening. Mark chapter 14, verse 18, during the Passover, he says to the disciples, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. He knew it was coming. Secondly, let's go back even further. Not on this night, but well back, three times in the gospel, Jesus predicted. Mark 10, verse 33 to 34. He says to his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. That's where he is right now, the Mount of Olives, just outside Jerusalem. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. Who sent the party? Who's in the crowd? It's the guards of the chief priests and the scribes. He predicted it. He's in control. Thirdly, this is no accident or morbid plan of a martyr. No, this is an ancient plan. This was planned long ago. Did you see in verse 49 when Jesus said, but let the scriptures be fulfilled? What scriptures? The scriptures of the Old Testament. The book was closed four or five hundred years before Jesus came, and yet Jesus is fulfilling even that plan. Notice in Isaiah 53, verse 12, it says this, predicting a future Savior, predicting a future Messiah, it says, He was numbered with the transgressors, i.e., this predicted Savior 
will be considered a criminal. And Zechariah 13 verse 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is not at the mercy of men here. He is in control. He shines in his character. He shines in his power. And he shines in his love for us that he allows this to happen. The black backdrop of human sin in Judas, the weakness of the disciples versus Jesus in control. Let's move on. The camera now zooms, fades to black, and we read in verse 43, oh sorry, 53 to 65. So this is scene two, the trial. They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. That's in their time was called the Sanhedrin. It represented all the elders of Israel. They came together in this, this court at night, and Peter followed Jesus at a distance. So Peter has fled, but He's sort of come back, and he's, he's at a distance here, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he's sitting with the guards, warming himself by the fire. So you've got, to, you've got to picture this scene now. Mark has just showed us this betrayal, and then he moves the scene one kilometer away to the high priest's house. And in this house, it's kind of like two stories. The top story is where Jesus is, and he's on trial. The bottom story, the courtyard outside, is where Peter is. He's warming himself by the fire. He's just fled, but he's come back. And Mark is, in his section here, from 53 to 72, is doing a sandwich. He, he starts with Peter, he's going to move to Jesus' trial, and he's going to end with Peter, again, to contrast, to show Jesus in the limelight against the backdrop of human sin. But let's first look at the trial. This is horrible. Uh, I can't even explain just how horrible this is to read. When you, yeah, anyway, when you consider the chief priests set apart by God from the time of Aaron to represent God, to be mediators between God and his people, they spend their whole life reading the scriptures, knowing God, offering sacrifices to God. These guys... They know the Bible better than anyone. And yet they're about to do this. Verse 55 to 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this testimony, they did not agree. I want you to see this. Okay, So you've got potentially 70 elders. They represent the whole of Israel. There might have been less there, but at least a representative group of Israel sitting in in the stands. And then you've got Jesus seated. And 
witness after witness after witness after witness comes and speak lies about him. They speak total lies about the one who is truth. They try and frame him. They try and make him look horrible. They try and make him look sinful. And they can't do it. Even in their lies, they can't do it. Even though they were probably paid and they orchestrated, it didn't line up. And in Jewish law, if the testimony did not agree, the charge would not stick. There's probably flickering torches. There's frustration. We don't even know how long this scene goes on for. It says later on that an hour passes between Peter's denials. And so this, this trial might have gone for a long time with hosts of witnesses coming before Jesus, lying about him. Lying about him. It's such wickedness, such sin. And this trial is no trial. The verdict has already been reached. Did you see in verse 55? The chief priests and the council were seeking to testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They'd already decided what they wanted to happen, and then they have this trial to find a charge against him because they have no charge. They have no crime, and they, they want to kill him. So they've got a verdict, they've got a sentence, he's guilty, he needs to die, but they've got no crime. So they make this false trial to try and find a crime to pin against Jesus, and they can't do it. Their testimony did not agree. Yet, through this heinous falsity, have you heard Jesus say anything? He's silent. He's silent. How quickly I want to defend myself, even in the, the stupidest things. Oh, we should have turned left. I told you that would have happened. I want to defend myself. Yet he's silent. And this frustrates the council and the high priest the one who, who enters into the most holy place, the one who once a year offers that great sacrifice for the people of God, the one who, who wears the special ephod, the one who represents the people of God to God, the mediator, the high priest stands in verse 60. Just imagine that moment, verse 60. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus. So you've got the council sitting around. You've got the torches. You've got the darkness. You've got the false testimony. You've got Jesus sitting and the high priest rising. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these testify against you? Verse 61, But he remained silent and made no answer the silence would have been deafening he made no answer he could have systematically gone through every single charge but he doesn't need to Verse 61, now the scene is going to change. Actually, the whole kind of gospel has been moving towards this moment. The secret of who Jesus is is about to be revealed. 
Verse 61, again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? The high priest cannot get the charge he wants. He cannot get anything to stick to Jesus. So now he needs a direct blasphemy from the mouth of Jesus. He needs Jesus to convict himself of the crime. He needs Jesus to be aggravated and to fight back. He wants Jesus to pin himself under a crime. He asks him two questions. Are you the Christ, i.e., are you the Messiah, the promised deliverer? Are you going to be like King David? But then he asks a deeper question. Are you the son of the blessed? Son of the blessed. uh, The blessed one is what they used to call God because they didn't want to use his real name, Yahweh. They didn't want to use that name, so they called him the blessed one. And he asks him, are you the son of God? Are you the son of the blessed? And if Jesus answers this, he's done for, potentially. Leviticus 24, 16. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. Stoned to death. Rocks will be thrown at that person until they die. What's blasphemy? Blasphemy is when you try and take the honor of God onto yourself. Will you try and ascribe God's glory to yourself? Take his name onto yourself. And Jesus says in verse 62, so are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. The name of God, Yahweh, I am. The I am is how Jesus responds. I am and, he doesn't stop there, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The roar comes. The the veil is sort of torn open. The light shines now. The darkness, the, the secret of who is this man who can heal the sick, raise the dead, give sight to the blind, ears to the deaf, who can preach and thousands follow, who can walk on water, who can cast out demons with a word. Who is this man? And he's just claimed it. I am And then he combines two prophecies in the Old Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So seated at the right hand of the power. That's where that comes from. Daniel 7, verse 13 is the rest of the phrase that Jesus says. Daniel has this vision. He's this Old Testament prophet awaiting God to release his people from slavery And Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions and behold, notice here, with clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all places, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You can't get a bigger statement for these guys. These guys knew these verses like the back of their hand. I don't really know the back of my hand so it's a stupid saying, but they knew it. 
They knew it. They knew what he was saying. They knew it. And what he's saying in this context is, you are judging me now, but one day you will stand before me and I will judge you. I will come on the clouds. You will see me and you'll stand in judgment before me. It's an audacious claim. It's a crazy claim. Jesus is not some nice guy, some moral teacher, some example of morality, because he claims to be this figure that will have an everlasting dominion, i.e. his reign will never end. Presidents go for four, maybe eight years. Dictators seem to go on for longer until they die. But Jesus says, I will reign forever. And what's their reaction? Verse 65, And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. This is a most violent reaction. The high priest rips the front of his clothes, an ancient expression of disgust at what someone has done, of lamenting at what someone has done, of being in shock. He rips his garment because Jesus has just claimed to be God himself. And they condemn him to death. And finally, to demonstrate their utter contempt for him, I find it hard to read and imagine the next section. I just want you to picture Jesus. The most kind, amazing man that ever lived. Never put anyone down. Only ever served. Only ever loved. Was only ever good. Pure. Pure. Never sinned. Verse 65. And some began to to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Spitting in Jesus' face. Punching Jesus Christ in the face while his head is covered. Beating Jesus Christ with a wooden club. Yet that's how heinous our sin is. Our sin spits on Jesus' face. My sin lays blows to his precious face. Your sin. That's how bad sin is. And 
It isn't hard, is it, to see the sin and weakness of humanity. But do you see Jesus in control? He predicted this would happen. Mark 10, 33, we've already read it. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus is in control. He predicted this would happen and he allows it to happen in love for us and in obedience to the Father. We mustn't make too much of ourselves. He's obeying his Father now. In love for us, yes, but primarily to glorify his Father. And he's fulfilling ancient prophecies. This demonstrates his control too. Isaiah 53, we'll go back there. In his silence, when he's being attacked, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Isaiah 50 verse 6, He's in control of his beating. It was predicted long ago. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Wickedness of man, blacker than black. Jesus Christ in control. Darkness and light contrast yet there's more the camera pans out of the courtroom and moves downstairs to show us what is happening with peter in the courtyard while jesus is being beaten upstairs simultaneously this is happening peter's warming himself by a fire after just fleeing but we need to remember back just just 30 verses prior in 27 and 31 just before Jesus, all this happens, Jesus said, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Go to verse 66. See the contrast. And as Peter was below in the courtyard... One of the servant girls of the high priest came. Don't skip that. A servant girl. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, 
I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed once. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystander, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Watch the sin. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. Once, privately, to a servant girl, he denies being a follower of Jesus. Secondly, he denies in front of a crowd being one of the disciples. And then thirdly, publicly and grievously, he asks God to curse him if he's lying, that he doesn't even know who this guy is. Seven chapters prior... Jesus, uh, Peter stood before Jesus and said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now in the night, he says, I don't even know him. I don't even know him. Verse 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, You'll deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. It's a dark scene. We cannot minimize Peter's sin in this moment. We cannot. After, Jesus con- after Peter confessed Jesus is the Christ, Jesus outlines what it is to be a disciple Whoever comes after me must deny himself and take up his cross. Instead, Peter here denies Jesus. And later on in that section, Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of him at the coming of the Son of Man. This is heinous sin. Grave sin. Dangerous, dangerous sin to be ashamed of Jesus, to deny him. And Peter weeps. And I believe in this moment we see we see grace in his life. That, that Peter weeps. I think it's a repent, repenting weep. It's a weep of he aware, he's aware of his sin. You see, Judas regrets what he does. He doesn't appear again in Mark, but in the other Gospels we learn that Judas regrets it, throws the money back to the high priests, and then hangs himself. But Peter weeps, I think, because he actually loves Jesus. And he's so sorry that he's done it. Well, the black backdrop is very dark. But again, Jesus is in control, for he predicted this would happen. He predicted it. He knew it. Human sin and weakness is on 
gross display here. It's blacker than black. And Jesus shines with his character, with his love, with his power, because he's in control. And I believe God wants me to apply this in two ways today. Firstly, for us as a church to know this, you are weaker than you think. You are weaker and more sinful than you think. How do you see yourself? Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are desperately weak as a human and sinful? Do you see yourself like Judas? Do you see yourself weak like the disciples, like the priests, and like Peter? Because I think what Mark is doing in this section is he's, he's putting our face in the crowd. He's showing the weakness of humanity, and we're a part of it. Do you believe that you could do some of the things that have been done here? I didn't used to believe it. Uh, I, there's a book by C.J. Mahaney who actually started some Grace Churches in the U.S. and it's called Living the Cross-Centered Life and in one chapter, the chapter is called Your Face in the Crowd and he asked this question, with whom do you most identify with in the events of this dark day? And he lists out many. But then he says, let me tell you who I identify with. I identify most and this we'll see it later, but I identify most with the angry mob screaming, crucify him. And C.J. Mahaney remarks, that's who we should all identify with. Because apart from God's grace, this is where we would be standing. And we're only, excuse me, flattering ourselves to think otherwise. Unless you see yourself standing there with the shrieking crowd full of hostility and hatred for the holy and innocent Lamb of God, you don't really understand the nature and depth of your sin or the necessity of the cross. Examine yourself. Because I remember reading that and disagreeing. I thought he was exaggerating. I thought he was overdoing it. Typical preacher. Overstating the case. I didn't see myself in the crowd. I didn't see myself capable of that because I was blinded by my own pride and I had such a high estimation of myself. I didn't think I would be capable. Yet, this threefold passage, these three scenes, the, the, the betrayal, the trial, and the denial, show us how sinful humanity can be. And now I know, and it's actually by God's grace through coming to this church, that I could just as easily have been Judas, or Caiaphas, the high priest, or Peter, or the crowd, or one of the guards clubbing Jesus. That could have been me. It could have been. If I was there, could it have been you? If it weren't for the grace of God. Is it you? If you were outside the grace of God. We need to get lower. We need to have a lower view of ourselves. 
we could be the ones doing that. I could be the one doing it. And yet, this knowledge in Christianity doesn't cause depression. What it causes is lower self-esteem, which is a swear word in our culture. But that is good because it does something else. When our self-esteem is lowered, it does something else. It raises our esteem of Christ. It raises up Jesus as the one who gives all grace. It shows that all the sin in my life comes from me and all the goodness in my life comes from him. Because I could have been Judas. I could have been Peter. I could have spat in Jesus' face and you could have too. So how sinful and weak are you? Grace will not glow. Jesus will not shine when the city light is full of lights. The sh- the, you cannot see the stars when you see light in, in everyone and in yourself, when you think more or less you're a good person, but it's when you see the darkness that Jesus shines and radiates. And he doesn't just shine like a star. He is the sun who drives out all darkness. That's Jesus. He's not a star in the sky. He's the sun. Isn't that incredible? He made the sun and he is the sun and he drives out the darkness in you if you turn to him. We need the grace of God in our life. Jesus said to Peter, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Your flesh is weak, brother and sister. You cannot please God without him helping you. So call out for grace. And finally, finally, do you see Do you believe, do you know that Jesus is in more control than you could ever imagine? He's in more control than you could think. He's in control of your life, of your suffering, of your mothering and fathering, of your marriage, of your occupation, of your study, of your singleness, of your trials, of your fears, of your salvation, of your destiny. He was in control in the garden. He was in control in the trial. He was in control in the courtyard. He was in control on the cross. He was in control on the grave. He was in control when the tomb was rolled away and he rose from death. And he was in control later when he calls Peter back to himself and restores him. See, Peter is an example of grace upon grace upon grace an example of what God can do, that grace reigns triumphant. Because Peter denies Jesus, yet he's not left. He's not excommunicated. Jesus calls Peter back to himself later and restores him. And then Peter goes out and goes back to the same high priests who Jesus stood before. And after preaching Jesus... He says to these high priests, after they arrest him, instead of denying Jesus to a servant girl, he says to the high priest himself, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Jesus is gloriously in control. He can turn tragedy into triumph. He can do it in your life this 
very moment if you call upon him. He's in control. He can change your life. He can change your destiny. He can change your eternity. He can help you to overcome sin and sadness and weakness and the guilt within. He's in control. So go to him in your weakness and receive his strength, the strength that he displayed so beautifully in these three scenes. And he's still in control today. You see, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in power. And all, including the high priests, will be raised. And all will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he is in control. And every tongue will confess it. Well, in this dark, dark, dark scene of their sin and our sin, of their weakness and our weakness, we see the radiating Son of God, full of grace and truth, full of power and strength, Jesus reigning in control. Then, today, now, forevermore. Lift him up. Lift him up in your eyes. Do you believe in this Jesus? This Jesus who reigns in grace and in truth. Let's pray.